The Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, or ADST, is an independent, nonprofit organization founded in 1986. Located at the State Department's George P. Schultz National Foreign Affairs Training Center in Arlington, Virginia, ADST advances understanding of American diplomacy and supports training of foreign affairs personnel through a variety of programs and activities. Over the past quarter century, ADST has conducted more than 1,800 oral histories, which are also posted on the Library of Congress website, with more to come. For more information on ADST and our oral histories, please visit www.adst.org. Joe Wilson was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut on November 6, 1949, and he grew up in California, Arizona, and Europe. In 1972, he graduated from the University of California at Santa Barbara with a Bachelor of Arts in History. Between 1976 and 1998, Wilson was employed with the U.S. Foreign Service, working in various African nations. From 1988 through 1991, he was the Deputy Chief of Mission in Baghdad. Shortly after Iraq invaded Kuwait on August 2, 1990, Saddam Hussein and his Republican Guard forces took hundreds of Americans and people of other nationalities hostage in Iraq and Kuwait. With Ambassador to Iraq April Glassby out of the country on medical leave, Wilson worked under extreme pressure and stress to secure the release and evacuation of the hostages. He was interviewed by Charles Stuart Kennedy beginning in January 2001. There, uh, in the early days, there was a sense that the Iraqis had gone down there to punish Kuwait and to take what they needed from Kuwait, uh, after which we thought they would probably withdraw. Uh, the evolution of the 19th province strategy and the border, the change, transferring of the border down to the hills just north of Kuwait didn't occur until the ensuing days. So we're talking about August 2nd now, and all that didn't really come to pass until August 6th. At this time, we were working literally 20, 22 hours a day. Every night, I was getting calls at 1 o'clock in the morning uh, saying that Nat Howell had, uh, had just uh, reported to the um, Department of State that Iraqi troops had amassed uh, around the embassy compound, and they were in a formation that suggested they were going to come over the walls and take the embassy. I would go over to the foreign ministry, go in the back door, go see Nizar Hamdoun, and report this to him and tell him, don't do it. And a couple of hours later, I'd get a call at home uh, waking me up, and it would be Nizar telling me that uh, higher authority had uh, had just told him, higher authority being Saddam, not to worry, they weren't going to invade. And I would relay that back to Washington, and an hour later or so, Washington would report back to me that, in fact, the Iraqi troops had backed off Uh from the embassy compound. This went on every night for several nights. So we were getting no sleep. Uh, We had all these people stuck down in Kuwait, and it was pretty hectic. And we had, of course, they were rounding up American citizens and making them uh, hostages. On the 4th of August, I guess it was, they brought up a bunch of Americans from Kuwait that they had rounded up in Kuwait during the invasion. And they had them at one of the hotels. And uh, I went over to try and see them. They wouldn't let me see any of them. And at that time, I was prepared to call a hostage a hostage. So I called Washington. Once we get past the first few days, after... After we've had, after I've had my meeting with Saddam, we, we see that the um, the troops are moving, and the uh, Iraqis have by this time on the 8th of August they have annexed Kuwait. Basically, they have said that Kuwait is now the 19th province of Iraq. So it becomes pretty clear that we're in for the long haul. We're preoccupied again with the welfare and whereabouts of our citizens. We're preoccupied with the evacuation of embassy employees. 
By this time, the Iraqis are rounding up American citizens in Iraq, in Baghdad, and so we were one step ahead of them. We were able to go out and get most American citizens and bring them into diplomatic quarters. So we've got 150 people that we're lodging and we're housing and we're feeding on various diplomatic compounds. We've got another 115, 120 that we've identified as human shields that have been caught up in all of this or are unaccounted for. We've got uh, what we estimated to be a couple thousand Americans in hiding in Kuwait, and they're running a little operation down there to try and bring everybody in safely into the embassy compound. And so we didn't have a whole lot of time to think about much more than how we were just going to get everybody out. We were working real hard to get the human shields released. Um, and Saddam, from his side, was attempting to paint a picture of himself as the benevolent Uncle Saddam. Mm -hmm. Um, he appeared on international TV with a 14-year-old hostage in a very eerie photo. It was a British boy. British boy. British I'll never kid. forget that footage. Yeah, and the footage was of him basically with the boy standing in front of him looking absolutely petrified as Saddam pats him on the shoulder, on the head, and makes like he's just, you know, invited this guy over to spend a few weeks with him in Iraq. Of course, the kid was there against his will. Kid's mother was there against her will. It was a, it was a very chilling, and I don't believe that uh, it achieved his propaganda aim, which was these people were not in fact hostages; uh, that they were just being held temporarily against their will, but they were all being treated very well. So about that time, the Egyptian ambassador called me up and invited me over for tea in the afternoon. So I went to see him, and we were we were sitting there talking, and he said, "You know, Saddam has just built this uh, big statue to himself at the Arab uh, Rose Square." And he's taken down the statue of an Arab on horseback, and he's replaced it with a 40-foot-high statue of himself. And at the same time he's done that, his people have gone around and instructed all the various business establishments in Iraq that might have the Arab hero in their business title, or Arab conqueror in their business title. He's gone and instructed them to change their names of their businesses because there is only one Arab hero in Iraq, and they're not it. So, the Egyptian ambassador went on, what we ought to do is we ought to turn this Arab hero stuff on its head, and we ought to make the point that Saddam Hussein, who is a self-styled Arab conquering hero, is really nothing more than a coward, because true Arab heroes do not hide behind little children or the skirts of women. Now, this, the next Monday or Tuesday, Maggie Thatcher went down the floor of the House of Commons, and she pretty much used the same language in denouncing Saddam. True Arab heroes do not hide behind the skirts of women and behind little children. And within about four or five days after that, Saddam came out and, and announced that women and children would be permitted to leave uh, Iraq, which basically opened up that floodgate. So we yeah. almost at once halved the number of hostages that we had in our custody. After the invasion of Kuwait, the first thing that happened was we imposed these, this presidential executive order, which was followed by a UN um, embargo on, on trade with Iraq. And now that meant everything from telephone communication, uh, for which we had to get a waiver, but also airplanes and sort of regularly scheduled airliners. We got waivers for humanitarian evacuations of the people who were being held against their will or were stuck in, in Kuwait and Iraq. But otherwise, we couldn't do it. So the only way that we could get people out was to drive them across the desert, which was about a 12-hour drive, to Jordan, or drive them up through Iraq to Turkey. And we began organizing for these evacuations uh, literally the second day. We went to a complete drawdown posture. We negotiated with the department how far down we were going to get. We ended up getting down to about seven or eight in the first evacuation. The timing of the evacuation was further complicated by an Iraqi requirement that you give them 10 days advance notice before you move 
more than 25 miles outside of Baghdad. And they were pretty inflexible about that. Now, in addition to that, for simple citizens, they had stopped all travel. So it was very difficult for people without diplomatic passports to leave the country. And then, of course, they were taking these people hostage. So we couldn't even risk exposing our citizens to the Iraqi street for fear that they would get picked up and turned into hostages. And in fact, some of the uh, Americans that we took in and put in diplomatic quarters, some of these Americans would go out to go do some shopping or something and get picked up. We had, a, we had a half a dozen guys that were staying with us who, who just decided they were going to go shopping and go back to their house and pick up their stuff and they get picked up and, and be made hostages. So for our own people, we managed a number of evacuations. The first one was to Jordan. We were able to get them out about the 12th, 10th or 11th or 12th. So we left a few hours before we said we were going to leave. They went out about sunrise. They drove all day through the desert. This is in August. They had animals. They had two or three to a car. We had our marine security detachment because we'd already shredded all our documentation. Therefore, their mission had been accomplished. We had all of the spouses and most of the non-essential employees. We sent them out. They got all the way across the border. They wouldn't let them across the border. They got calls through the public telephone system through me. I was in constant communication with the foreign ministry. I told them to stay where they were. They didn't stay, and they turned around and came back. About one-third of the way back, I got word from the foreign ministry that the borders were open and they could go forward. We couldn't get in touch with them. They drove all the way back. We put them to bed and sent them back across the next day, at which time they finally got out. It was extraordinarily stressful for them, for us, for everybody involved. But we did get them out. We still had all these people down in Kuwait. They were numbering over 100 in Kuwait. And the 100 in Kuwait were all stuck inside the embassy compound. There may have been some Americans who were in hiding. In fact, at one time we had figured about that our numbers were about 2,000, but we could never verify that. Our focus then was trying to get these guys uh, out of Kuwait. Now, by this time, the Iraqis had annexed Kuwait, and they were continually moving in a threatening fashion around the embassy compound. They were looting embassy houses around town. I would still get calls from that house saying, you know, they're going to take over the embassy tonight, you need to do something to stop them. These calls would come by the State Department. But it would been sort of become sort of a stalemate. About this time, I, we started talking about what would the Iraqi reaction be if we were to draw down our diplomatic presence in Kuwait. Now, I broached this subject with the Iraqis and got my knuckles wrapped at the department because I was premature and they hadn't thought their way through that. Ten days later, they asked me to go in and make the same exact same representation I had made. So go figure. But my meeting with Tariq Aziz on this particular subject, I asked them how they would react to our reducing the size of our diplomatic presence in Kuwait City and bringing the non-essential diplomats and their families not just out of Kuwait but out of the region. His response to me was that Iraq would abide by all of the relevant conventions, meaning the Vienna Convention, concerning the movement of diplomats from one country to another. As a consequence of that, I made a case that we ought to go ahead and withdraw the non-essential diplomats and bring them up and prepare to move them out of the region. Now, Nat Howe sent off a cable saying, Tariq Aziz is a low-life double-crosser. He's no doubt going to double-cross us on this. They'll get up to Baghdad and they'll get stuck in Baghdad. Yeah. So I sent off a cable in response to Nat's saying, I agree fully with uh, the distinguished ambassador's assessment of the Iraqi foreign minister. 
That said, our experience is that the Americans who are here in Baghdad are by and large safer, better taken care of than those who are stuck in the embassy compound in Kuwait. Oh. The diplomats who are already up here are allowed to move around. They have got uh, access to food on the market. They don't uh, have to worry about Iraqi troops coming over the walls every night. So in my judgment, even if Tarek does what Matt suggests he's going to do, i.e. double crosses, it is still a net plus for these people to be in Baghdad. They're one country closer to yeah. freedom than to be stuck inside the embassy compound in Kuwait. And uh, we sent a guy down to Kuwait to lead the convoy up. And Charlie went down there. And uh, he was experienced, he was an Arabist, so he'd speak Arabic. He helped them organize. We got the cars, we got uh, everybody together, and we moved about well over 100 people to Baghdad. The convoy left Kuwait about 8 o'clock in the morning, and it was about an eight-hour drive. So we figured that we would see them about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And once again, we lost contact with them. We did not see them until 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, when you're in charge of American lives, you tend to worry. We had set up beds and mattresses. We'd taken the Marine House and made it basically a flop house for everybody. And we'd put a lot of water and we'd put beer and we'd put everything over there so that these guys would be able to uh, at least be relatively comfortable. We finally got everybody bedded down at 4 o'clock in the morning. And we said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take all your passports. We collected everybody's passports. We're going to get the exit visas. They promised us they're going to open up at 6 o'clock in the morning and we're going to get you back on the road, and we're going to get you up to Turkey. It's going to be a long night and a long day, but you're going to be out of, out of here. So we go down to the, we take the passports down to the um, authorities, and nobody's there. And then they decide they're not going to issue the exit visas, and by about 9 o'clock in the morning, it's pretty clear we've been double-crossed. So I um, went over and talked to uh, Nizar, and the answer I got from the Iraqis was, what the foreign minister told you was that when you closed your embassy in Kuwait, all the diplomats and members of the mission would be permitted to leave. Your embassy is not closed. The American flag is still up there. And uh, therefore, these people will not be permitted to leave. And I said, well, that's no excuse. And he said, well, you know, Kuwait no longer exists. It is no longer a sovereign country. Therefore, these people no longer have diplomatic immunity. So they're not going to be permitted to leave. They're subject to all the same travel restrictions as everybody else. So I went back, and we then made the case that, at a minimum, uh, they had an obligation under Saddam's own edicts to allow the women and children in the convoy to leave, because they had already allowed women and children to leave. And there were about 60 women and children. I think the whole convoy was about 127, something like that. So we were able to negotiate uh, the departure of the women and children, which we did. So we sent all their passports back, got the exit visas for them. Now, in this group that we had, there were about, I think, four kids who were 18. So they were right over on the adult yeah. side of the line. Their mothers could leave, but these kids oh, had to stay. And then we also had a group that existed to plot the movements of the human shields. And this was you know, particularly important. What happened was that as we went through this, Saddam uh, periodically would release hostages. He released the French because he thought that that would cause the French to drop out of the coalition that was arrayed against him. Now, when these hostages would be released, they would often come in and they would bring letters from American hostages. And through these letters, uh, we were able to plot about 55, 56 points on the map where they were being held. 
And the other thing that Saddam did is he moved the hostages every 10 to 14 days so that we would also be able to plot the movement of the hostages from one place to the next. The net result of this was at the end of a couple of months, we had a pretty good picture of the 56 places that Saddam deemed of sufficient strategic value to put hostages. Every time there was a visitor, uh, we would have some input into which hostages got released. Um, or uh, we found loopholes in, in the management of the hostage program that we were able to go in and say, well, this person is, doesn't fit this category of hostage, therefore you should release him. Uh, we were able to make the case that mothers and children should not be separated, and as a consequence, it didn't make any difference whether the mother was Kuwaiti or American. So long as the child was an American, the mother should go with them, because mm -hmm. you couldn't do that. We were successful in that. Really? The other thing that we tried to do uh, diplomatically, I made this case in November. We made the case that Saddam should be under no illusion that keeping the hostages was going to prevent war. And so we, we offered a number of opportunities for Americans to, um, uh, to come to the Kuwait airport and get on an aircraft flying out of the area. I think we flew something in the order of 12 or 11 or 12 flights. We had a number of those who were being housed in diplomatic quarters um, who took it upon themselves to make a break for it. And we counseled them not to do it. It was dangerous. But they were committed to doing so. And since we could not, we had no legal means of keeping them against their will, all we could do was counsel them not to do it and then provided uh, as much support as we could, which included providing maps, compasses, and, uh, and the such. And so a number of them, maybe as many as, I don't know, three or four different groups uh, over a period of three weeks, left in the middle of the night, drove as far out towards the Jordanian border as they could, which was typically um, within a couple of miles. And I don't know how they got through the checkpoints. But they did. They get all, all the way over to the Jordanian border, walk a couple of miles out into the desert, turn towards the Jordanian border at an appointed point, and cross the desert and cross into Jordan where they would be met by American authorities on the other side. So we ran those little operations as well. On the 9th, I got a phone call from Nizar Hamdoun. He said uh, higher authorities have confirmed that should you decide to withdraw your diplomatic representation, you can do so. We pose no objections. So I uh, phoned that into Washington, and uh, Washington uh, replied, well, that's fine. Why don't you get on an airplane? At that time, there were still airplanes going back and forth to Amman, and get on a commercial flight out of Jordan. Now, this is the 10th of January. I said, well, that's very thoughtful of you after we you know, run all these charter flights to Europe, taking everybody and their uncle and their dogs and maids and everybody up to Europe. They were going to have us fly to Amman, Jordan, and wait around for a commercial flight. And my idea was to charter the Iraqi 747, because when we ran our charter flights, because of the nature of the sanctions and the Iraqi counteraction to the sanctions, the Iraqis only allowed Iraqi charter flights to run our humanitarian flights. So we went out, uh, we took the flag with us, and we flew out on the uh, 12th. We took uh, most of the other diplomats. The French stayed and left by automobile the next day. Most of the rest, certainly all the Western diplomatic missions, we took out with us. This has been an ADST oral history podcast. To read the entire interview or similar oral history moments, please visit www.adst.org. Thank you for listening.